okay. Let me see. Let's put that. Uh, it's no, it's back up here. Right there. As I mentioned earlier this morning, uh, Pastor Brad and his family are out of town, so we are um, blessed to have Reverend Mark Davis with us this morning. And I look forward to hearing his message, what he has to say this morning. And with that, I'll invite Mark to come forward, and he's going to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about his past and then bring us our morning message. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate your having me. Uh, while I'm introducing myself, you can be turning to our text for today, and that is the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. It's Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Luke 5, 33 through 39. And the title of my sermon is, To Receive the New, You Must Let Go of the Old. My hometown is Hendersonville, North Carolina. I was born in 1965. I was one of those kids that was very blessed because I was brought up in a Christian home, uh, an evangelical home. I was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whether I wanted to be or not. And I'm just really thankful to the Lord that you know, my parents saw the importance of that. When I was eight years old, I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I was baptized. When I graduated from high school, my intention was to go to college and to major in forestry. And so I entered uh, the University of North Carolina at Asheville. And my intention was to go there for a couple of years and transfer to North Carolina State University. But about halfway through college, I began to feel the call to the ministry. I had been active in campus ministry in, in a group known as the Baptist Student Union in college. And that was very influential on my call. So a, after much prayer, it, it seemed confirmed that that was my calling. And I, I changed my major in college to psychology. Graduated in 1989, then I entered Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and graduated in 1992. I have uh, six years experience in campus ministry. Uh, towards the end of that period, I began to feel called to the pastorate. So uh, I began pastoring Naraya Baptist Church in Buena Vista in 1997. I pastored there till 2004. And most recently, I pastored Highland Baptist Church in Monterey from 2005 to 2023. I, uh, during the first year of my first pastorate, I met my lovely wife, Diane. Uh, and uh, we dated for a year and a half, and we got married in 1999. She is an elementary school teacher. She and Aaron used to teach together, uh, although she is now teaching at a small school up in uh, West Virginia. And then in 2003, uh, we had a wonderful daughter, uh, and Lauren is now a, a rising sophomore at Regent University. So, enough about me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is the word you've laid on my heart. I pray for your anointing. I pray that you would enable me to preach clearly and enable me to preach boldly. And may we all be changed by your word. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the, the new garment, 
and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. And of course, the interpretation in a nutshell is that like oil and water, the old way of the law, and especially the legalistic way of the Pharisees, and the new way of the gospel can't be blended. They are incompatible. The old way should be abandoned. The new way embraced wholeheartedly. I want to talk to you for uh, just a minute about fasting. He said, John's disciples fast, the, the Pharisees fast, but yours don't. Uh, fasting is, uh, sadly, uh, an underemphasized spiritual discipline. We see fasting all throughout the Bible. But, I, you know, I can tell you that I, I, I was brought up in the Baptist church. And we, in my home church, fasting was never emphasized. And, that, and that's sad. The purpose of fasting is to bring one into closer fellowship with God. It is a very powerful spiritual discipline. I think it, more quickly than any other spiritual discipline, reveals what controls you. So, fasting should be practiced. But there are times when fasting is not in order. Nobody fasted during wedding celebrations. The bridegroom was with the disciples. Again, the purpose of fasting is to bring one into closer fellowship with God. Well, they couldn't be in any closer fellowship. The bridegroom, Jesus Christ, was with them. They were in the, in the immediate presence of God and Jesus Christ. So why fast? It was a new day. Fasting was inappropriate for that particular time. Now there was going to come a time when Jesus would ascend to his Father that it would be appropriate to fast. And fasting is going to be appropriate until the Lord comes back. But, I, but uh, I share that because it was not appropriate for that particular time. And then he goes on to talk about uh, um, patches and cloths and garments. It doesn't make sense to get a patch out of a new garment to patch up an old garment. It makes no sense at all. First of all, the old garment will have faded some. So the new garment, the patch from the new garment, there's no way that it, it can exactly match the old garment. When this story is told in Matthew and Mark, it talks about the shrinking aspect. You know, clothes shrink over time. And it seems like they shrink more when they're new. You buy something new, you put it in a washing machine, and oftentimes it, it shrinks initially. Well, the new patch would obviously shrink more than the old garment. So the new patch would tear away from the old garment. Finally, if you have a new garment, why, wear it? why not wear it instead of the old? Why destroy a new garment or new cloth by taking a patch from it just to save the old. Then he talks about wine and wineskins. New wine has to ferment. And when it is fermenting, it produces gases. So it expands. The container in which you put it has to be strong enough or flexible enough to contain it, to handle it. Now, new wines can stretch. Now, new wineskins can stretch. But old wineskins can't because they have already stretched. If you put new wine into old wineskins, it will destroy the wineskins and the wine will run out. So it makes no sense whatsoever. And again, the interpretation is that the old way of the law 
and the new way of the gospel just don't mix. Here are some scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Galatians 3.27 All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You see, if you're saved, Christ is your garment. Why, and, and how can you improve upon Christ? Why would you want to wear an old garment? And then we're told explicitly in Romans 13, 14, clothe yourselves with Christ Jesus. Clothe yourselves with him, not with an old garment. Not with the old way of doing things. Now the gospel is eternally new wine. The gospel is new wine. It cannot be contained within the old forms of the law. The sacrifice of animals cannot remove sin. Circumcision cannot change the heart. Observing dietary laws can't make one inwardly clean. The old temple system is obsolete because Christ himself is the temple. And the way into the holy of holies, into the immediate presence of God, is no longer entered through a curtain, it is entered through Jesus Christ himself. But, because old garments are often real comfortable, and I think that we all can admit to this, we often wear old garments till they're practically falling off of us. Just because they're comfortable. And in the natural, old wine, old aged wine is better. And thus many refuse to drink the new. But Jesus is using natural things to illustrate spiritual things. And the, the refusal to embrace the new illustrates the spiritual state of many people. They think the old way is, is good enough. They think the old way is even better. But the old way can't make us new. Jesus and Jesus alone makes us new. And Jesus and Jesus alone renews us daily. He says in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. The gospel is eternally new. It is unchanging, but it's eternally new. You know, even, the old, even in the Old Testament, one was saved by the grace of God through faith. So the message is the same. But now that we have the fullest revelation of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's senseless to cling to the Old Testament way of living out our faith. So as it says in Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, put off the old self and put on the new self. We are to repent of our sins and we're to put our faith solely in Jesus for salvation. And solely in Jesus for daily cleansing and daily sanctification. And we are to cooperate with him by living by the Holy Spirit. Now that's the interpretation of the passage. But I'm going to be speaking about another application of the passage. You know, this country is in bad shape. It's in bad shape. And the church all over the country needs revitalization. Revitalization's available. You know, we have, we have this promise from God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's a promise. But it's conditional. If we want to receive 
that blessing that he promises, we have to cooperate with him. Humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways. So revitalization is available if we just cooperate with the Lord. And we need to remember that each and every one of us, not just the pastor, each and every one of us is responsible for revitalization. So it's possible that God wants you to change some of the ways you do church. I don't know. But seek Him about it. I don't know the situation. But I know that often we have to abandon the old wineskins and use new wineskins. Now I'm not saying in any way to use different wine. A lot of people when they hear the words change and when they hear the words new, instantly their mind goes to, well, he's talking about being liberal. No, absolutely not. We cannot dilute the gospel, otherwise it's not the gospel. And if it's any other gospel, there will be no transformation. We cannot compromise on the Bible. Because the Bible shows us the way to live. It reveals God to us. Biblical morality must never, ever be compromised. If it is, the disciples we make or will not be disciples of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying to change the purposes of the church. As long as the church exists, our purpose will be to worship the Lord God, to fellowship with other believers, to become disciples, to grow as disciples, and to make disciples, to share the gospel with the lost, and to minister to one another and to the community and to the world. Those are our purposes. But how those purposes are carried out might need changing. I'll give you an illustration from the Lewis and Clark expedition. Lewis and Clark, of course, were given the mandate by President Thomas Jefferson to explore the continent of North America. Go all the way to the Pacific Ocean as you're going. Make note of the flora and the fauna and the geography, etc. Because he wanted to know all about this, this land that we were in. Now, Lewis and Clark thought that once they crossed the mountains that were in sight, you know, the beginning of the Rocky Mountains, they thought that once they were able to get over them, then it would, the rest of the trip would be easy to the Pacific. But that's not exactly how it happened. Once they crossed those mountains they could see, what did they see? More mountains. They had no idea how vast the Rocky Mountain Range is. And so they had to change their plan somewhat. The goal was still the same. To reach the Pacific Ocean. To write about the flora and the fauna and the geography and the various Indian tribes. But they couldn't do it exactly the way that they had originally planned. They, if they had to adapt. They had to change. I'm sure most of you have heard this particular definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But unfortunately, an awful lot of churches in America are practicing the definition of insanity. 
They have a heart for the Lord. They have a heart for people, but they're not willing to change things. And so they don't grow. And the older members die off. They don't bring in young people, and eventually they have to shut the doors. Either they couldn't see their need for change, or they were unwilling to change. I'm going to give some examples. I don't, I don't know what is applicable to this church, but you know, and the Lord knows. For instance, um, I was at a BGA convention one time, and one of the breakout sessions that I took was on children's ministry. And um, one of the consultants for the BGAB was leading the breakout session, and he talked about how there was this one church that called him in and asked him for adv advice and consultation about how uh, they could grow their children's ministry, how, how they could bring in children. They had almost no children. And the very first thing that he did was he went through the building and he said, well, the first thing that I can tell you to do is if you want children, your nursery needs to be in the best room in the building. Right now it's in the worst room in the building. How's that going to attract parents with children? I had a buddy um, who's gone on to be with the Lord. He was a retired pastor, and uh, he and I like to play golf together. And George told me of this time where he visited a church, and he got there a little bit early, and he sat down. And uh, he was waiting for the service to begin, and all of a sudden, uh, this elderly family came in, and, and the lady came up to him and said, Excuse me. And George has been around the block, and he said, I must be sitting in your pew, right, ma'am? Yes. Okay, well, I'll move. He handled it nicer than I would have. Not even willing to sit somewhere else to make a visitor feel welcome. Along those same lines, I, I, I have an acquaintance named Morgan. And Morgan told me about how he started to visit uh, this church. It was a fairly large church. They had two services. And Morgan was dressed pretty casually. He gets up to, uh, he gets up to the door of the sanctuary where they're handing out bulletins and the usher looks at him and says, the contemporary service is at 9.30. Well, Morgan just turned around and left. He obviously wasn't welcome. Near where I live, there's a church that still doesn't have indoor plumbing. How are you going to attract people to your church and you don't have indoor plumbing? Oh, plans are in the making to put indoor plumbing, but they keep getting delayed because this person has one idea of how to do it, and this person has another idea of how to do it, and another person has another idea of how to do it. We need to do things my way. My way. Wait a minute. Who's Lord of the church? And that speaks to there are churches all over the place that have control freaks. Jesus is Lord of the church. I think we're supposed to be seeking Him as to what is His way of doing things. I remember in my first church, uh, we had a, a food bank ministry, and it, it was a good ministry. The guy in charge of it, uh, it, again, it was a good ministry, but there was one aspect of it that perhaps could be done a little bit better. And there were differences in the church about this. But he was so convinced that there was nothing wrong with his way that I don't believe that he was even willing to go to the Lord and pray about it.
You know, if a person is being controlling in the church, then the person is usurping the role of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is supposed to be in control. The person's committing idolatry. We want to reach people. What did Jesus say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We expect people to come into the church. But we're not willing to, but a lot of times we're not willing to go out to where they are. And a lot of us have no problem with inviting somebody to the church. There's an awful lot of Christians that have very rarely in their lives shared the gospel message. Every Christian should learn how to share the gospel message and should be sharing with people outside the church. It's wonderful to say, I invite you to come to church, but how about asking them, hey, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure whether or not you'd go to heaven? And based upon that answer, launch into the gospel presentation. You know, there are lost people out there and they're going to hell. Churches ought to do surveys and find out what are the needs of the community. How can the church minister to the community immediately around them? And not only surveys, but going to the Lord in prayer. Lord, what what ministries do you want us to do? You know, no church can do everything. And I've run into some unchurched people that think the church is supposed to do everything. We can't. Okay? But there are ministries that we can do. And we should be doing them. How about making um, the church more conducive to young people? I, I was, I was ple- I, we didn't sing it, but I was pleased to see that uh, we were originally going to sing Days of Elijah. You know, it's a contemporary worship song. It's a wonderful song. Some people say, well, you know, contemporary songs are not very theological. Some of them are not. Some of the old hymns are not, don't have good theology. But some of the but many of the contemporary songs are very, very worshipful, just like many of the old hymns. I remember that um, in 1992-93, I interned as an associate campus minister with the Baptist Student Union in Virginia Tech. And we were on our midwinter retreat. Now, I play the guitar. And so I was asked, well, would you bring your guitar and, uh, you know, we'll provide the words and the chords if you'll play the songs. See, I I was brought up in a Baptist church and, uh, you know, it was a traditional church. You know, we sang the hymns out of the hymnal. And I, I personally, you know, I don't dislike hymns. I like hymns. And I, I sing bass. I like to sing harmony. I like to see a written harmony there for me to sing. And for the longest time, I, I didn't care much for contemporary songs. But during this midwinter retreat, as I was playing for them, I saw all these college students ardently and fervently worshiping the Lord God. That changed my mind. You know, that's the important thing, is worshiping the Lord. The liturgy is secondary. But if newer and more contemporary liturgy attracts young people, why not? If it, if it is used to worship the Lord God. Well, I don't like it. 
Well, you know what? It isn't about what you like. It isn't about what I like. It's about what God likes. God likes anything that glorifies him, but God knows that we need new wineskins. Have we sought him about our worship service? The goal, is, the goal is to worship the Lord God, not to please self. If we worship the Lord God, we'll be greatly blessed. But first things first, and that's worshiping the Lord God. How about new ways of doing youth and children's ministry? And then so many churches are unwilling to pray together. That, I mean, that's a tragedy. Each church ought to have a set time of coming together and crying out to the Lord God. We call it prayer meeting. Whatever you want to call it. Again, if my people are recalled by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Charles Spurgeon, perhaps one of the greatest Baptist preachers ever. He was showing, uh, he was showing a visitor through his church building one time and he, and he showed them a particular room and he said, that, that functions like the boiler room. That's, that's where our success comes from. And it was the room in which people gathered together to pray. Tell you, tell you a neat little story about corporate prayer. So I moved up to Virginia in 1997, and I took Naraya Baptist Church. Okay? I did not know this at the time, and I did not know Diane at the time. But the church she was attending in Stanton had a, had a big emphasis on prayer. And her wonderful friend Leanne, Leanne's mother, Maxine, was the pianist at the church where I ended up. But before, before I arrived, this church was praying heavily for Nariah to get the right pastor. And little did Diane know that this pastor would end up being her husband. Power of prayer. The blessings of prayer. You know, one of the worst things that you can hear in church is, we ain't never done it that way before. And there, sadly, there's a lot of people that will fight against new ways, thinking the old ways are good enough, or they're better. Well, ask this question. How's that working for you? Have you done the same old, same old, same old, and expecting different results, but the results are not good? Is the church growing, or is it dying? Or is it just maintaining? Just maintaining is not, not good enough. God wants us to be growing. But, you know, there's so many folks that out of pride or out of stubbornness will just dig in their heels. We ain't going to do those things. They feel like if they yield, they are weak. Well, this is what James 4 says, God opposes the proud. And this is what 1 Samuel 15, 23 says, Stubbornness is like idolatry. I, I get bothered by the fact that, you know, our youth and children are just absolutely bombarded these days with secularism, with humanism, with socialism, with the woke agenda, with the LBGTQ agenda. Children, youth and children are bombarded with it. And, and we get angry about it. And we want to do something about it. But yet we're not willing to take the step of making necessary changes in the church. 
We're not willing to go that route to reach out to them, to rescue them from this evil, demonic agenda. Just because we won't do it our way. To me, that's selfish. Again, how about checking out God's way? The eternally new wine of the gospel burst old wineskins. So if a church continues in old wineskins, eventually it's going to shut its doors. So what old wineskins need to be discarded? And what new wineskins need to be utilized? And by no means am I saying throw out every tradition. Some traditions are really effective. Still today. Such as the altar call. As you know, the altar call was new at one time. The altar call was not traditionally part of worship services until the Second Great Awakening, which occurred in the early 1800s. See, it's still, compared to the 2,000 years of church history, a relatively new phenomenon. It's old to us, but it's still effective. But together as a church, we need to get on our knees and we need to ask God, Lord God, is there anything you want us to change? Is there anything that you want us to do new? Again, you do not change the gospel. You do not compromise the Bible. You don't change the purposes of the church. But there are more effective ways to do them. Make use of denominational consultants. But ultimately, God knows perfectly. And you know, God still speaks. God is not mute. I'm thankful that you know, God speaks with me all the time. I love hearing from the Lord. But there's one condition that's very important for hearing Him. You want to hear from Him? You need to be willing to obey Him. If you're not willing to obey Him, no point in asking. The old ways are often comfortable. And being comfortable is comforting. I know. But for those of you who have continually grown in Christ, I know that you would be willing to admit that a lot of times the greatest growth has come during times of discomfort. It's come during times of trial and tribulation where God has expected you to persevere. And you have, and He's brought you through, and you're a different person. You know, since God is in the business of constantly renewing us, it means that we need to be constantly in the business of crucifying the old self. And crucifixion is not comfortable. Just ask Jesus. This is something in me that I'm working on. Uh, something that, that I, I really don't like to see in people. I really don't like to see people that have tattoos. It's all over their body, everywhere. And just piercings absolutely everywhere. Not just the ears, but nose, lips. It really bothers me. But that's my problem. And I need to continually change. Because that person is so important to the Father that he sacrificed his son Jesus to save that person. Yeah. If we want to live, we have to die. We have to die daily. You know, there are people out there that are really turned off by the church. There's people with all kinds of emotional problems. 
There's people who don't feel accepted by anybody. And I'm not saying that much of, much, that, you know, much of that is their own fault. But they're the kind of people that we're to reach out to, to minister to, to evangelize. And again, young people are just absolutely bombarded by these demonic agendas, woke and LGBTQ. Furthermore, they're lost people. And lost people are going to hell. Jesus considered them worth dying for. Aren't they worth us asking God if we need to make any changes? And if so, making them? Yeah. And I said I would give an altar call and I'm issuing an invitation. First, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ to save you, there's no time like now. Without Christ, we're lost. We are all sinners and continually falling short of the glory of God. And we need saving. We can't save ourselves. If we could save ourselves by being good enough, well, what was the point of Jesus coming to die for us? He knew we needed saving, and so he came. And he lived a perfect life. And while he was on the cross, your sins and my sins were placed on Jesus. He paid the penalty for our sins that we deserve. He, who was perfectly righteous, was deemed a sinner so that you and I might receive Jesus' righteousness. God made, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And he died. And he was resurrected. And he lives today. And he was ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he offers this salvation as a gift, a free gift. But we've got to receive it. And how do you receive it? You receive it through faith. And this is what faith is not. Faith is not merely believing that God exists. The devil believes God exists. He's obviously not saved. Saving faith is more than trusting him with temporal things of this life, such as health and finances and safety. We should trust him for those things, but it's more than that. Saving faith necessarily involves repentance. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. Jesus saved us to live for him and not for ourselves. And we need to be willing to die to selves and lay down our own agendas. Say, I'm going to live for you. And saving faith means trusting him and him alone and nobody else to forgive us of our sins, to transform us inwardly, and to take us to heaven when we die. It's just like, you know, if you needed heart surgery... Could you operate on your own heart? Obviously you cannot. You have to put your life in the hands of the heart surgeon. It's the same way with Jesus Christ. Now if you are saved but you haven't been living for the Lord, if you've been backsliding, how about trying forward sliding? How's backsliding working for you? Not very good, is it? You need to make some changes in your life. You know, however the Holy Spirit is prompting you Listen to Him and obey Him. If you need ministry, if you're down and out, if you're depressed, if you're sick, if you've got relationship problems, I'll pray for you. The church will pray for you. If you need, if you need to hear, I accept you, I love you. That's what the church is for. I'll pray for you. Whatever, whatever, however the Holy Spirit may be moving upon you. This is a time of ministry. You know, the Lord loves you. I believe that God created each and every one of us to be world changers. To change our little corners of the world. That God wants to affect everyone around us for the good through us. And He can do it 
If he created the universe with just the word, which he did, he can certainly make those transformations in us. And he wants to renew us and bless us. He said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, abundantly. If you want prayer, now's the time.